Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Alan J. Walkey, MD, MSc. He was the lead author of an article published in the June edition of Critical Care Medicine 2011, the title of which is Utilization Patterns and Patient Outcomes Associated with the Use of Rescue Therapies in Acute Lung Injury. Dr. Walkey is is an assistant professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine in Boston, Massachusetts, and he's a pulmonary critical care attending in the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Boston Medical Center. The citation for this article is Critical Care Medicine 2011, Volume 39, Number 6. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast, Dr. Walkey. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Savell. As we were discussing before, Alan, I was very excited about bringing this one into the podcast list because you've chosen an important topic that, as you point out in your article, is there's a lot of variability, there are a lot of controversies, and I remember as a hospitalist turned intensivist, managing these patients when your back is sort of up against the wall, managing somebody with severe uh, ARDS, and you're deciding which of the following uh, rescue or salvage therapies for ARDS, these patients can be the sickest of the sick, and it's where, as a hospitalist, you will be definitely trying to coordinate with an intensivist because these are it's tricky to decide which particular mode to use. Um, as is often pointed out, most institutions pick sort of one or two to become expert at. And often, I remember as a fellow, you would be referring to a regional medical center to see if they can require more complex equipment such as extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And just as an introduction, and then I'll let you take it from there, the big picture from what I gleaned from looking at your study, was that you looked at data from the various ARDSnet trials, and you said, let's see if we can look at the salvage therapy or rescue therapy for patients with severe ARDS and try and make some big-picture discussion, such as what are the various patterns of use, and is there any real benefit that we can glean from this data by using these rescue therapies. And so I, I thought I'd let you take it from there to give a little background of the study. That's a, that's a great uh, summary, uh, Dr. Savell. Yes, yeah, so we have many adjunctive modalities that are available for patients with difficult-to-manage ARDS, as, as you had suggested. These commonly involve prone positioning or inhaled vasodilators, such as inhaled nitric oxide or inhaled uh, epoprostenol. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO, is sometimes utilized as well as high-frequency ventilation. And there have actually been over 20 randomized controlled trials of these modalities. And while these randomized controlled trials have shown improvements in oxygenation in most of the studies, there's really no clear mortality benefit for use of these uh, modalities in uh, difficult-to-manage ARDS. And so just to, I mean, just again, for like critical care fellows, it seems to me a theme I've seen over the past decade in critical care, originating even from the original ARDSnet trial, was that the group that had low tidal volume ventilation had worsened hypoxia but lived. And and yet, in reality, at two in the morning when you're managing a patient like this and you're losing ground, you, you don't want the patient to code because of hypoxemia, right? And this is another one of the points that you're making. That's right. And it's you know, difficult to know in an individual patient what level of hypoxemia will be. 
tolerated. We don't have evidence for, for that. Um, you know, so we have these randomized controlled trials uh, that looked at these interventions. However, what's interesting to me about these randomized controlled trials is that they generally enroll patients with early ARDS, usually within 48 hours of meeting the consensus criteria for ARDS. So, you know, these are protocolized enrollment. However, I think when we talk about these therapies, we often use the term rescue therapy. It's used in the literature, and we'll use it in everyday clinical conversations or, or salvage therapies. And that, uh, to me, implies use uh, sort of later in the course, uh, uh, you know, as a salvage therapy. So, you know, first I was looking at this uh, from the perspective that these therapies in practice may not be used how they were used in, in the trials. And um, this brought up the questions of we don't actually know how these therapies are used in practice, and then what are the outcomes associated with their use in practice. And then I thought I'd let you take it from there and talk about some of the designs uh, specifically around this particular study in terms of your primary objectives. Sure. So as I stated, our primary objective was first to look at practice patterns involving use of rescue therapies and then to look at outcomes associated with use of rescue therapies. And we sought to look at outcomes uh, comparing patients who received rescue therapy to those that didn't and then also outcomes between the two most commonly used rescue therapies. And we didn't know what those would be going in, but we decided a priori to compare the two that would, were used most commonly. So investigating practice patterns in ARDS is very difficult, and this is mainly because we don't have reliable administrative data that can identify patients who have ARDS. There's no ICD-9 code that reliably identifies ARDS. There's no means of identifying ventilator modes or prone positioning used in large administrative databases. And so uh, that's the reason why we sought to use the ARDSnet open access data. So there's open access data available via the NIH BioLink site that with a data use agreement, you can obtain the data from the ARDSnet trials. And so uh, what was important is that uh, during the ARDSnet trials, these uh, rescue or salvage therapies, however you want to term them, adjunctive therapies, they were allowed uh, in a non-protocolized manner, but they were also tracked and the type of therapy was tracked as well as the uh, timing of use. So this allowed us to look at practice patterns of these therapies used within the ARDSnet trial uh, setting. And this data set was also well-suited because it's a very well-characterized cohort of patients with acute lung injury, and uh, there's detailed collection of covariates uh, and the rescue therapy use that allowed us to uh, attempt to control for what's likely to be a large amount of confounding between patients who received rescue therapy and those that didn't, these patients are probably different, and we need to control for those differences and, or adjust for those differences in our analyses. And so and the, the other thing I was going to ask you before we go into the, some of the details of your results were, um, uh, I read in your study, it was multiple ARDSnet trials that you gathered the data from. Was it all of them, or how did you decide that? Yes. Uh, so we actually uh, chose to use all of the trials um, from the original um, ARMA-KARMA-LARMA studies investigating the low tidal volume factorial with either ketoconazole or lysophylline as potential therapies, and then the Lazarus trial looking at corticosteroid use. And we also used data from the alveoli trial comparing high versus low PEEP in the FACT trial, which was also a factorial trial looking at um, pulmonary artery catheters and central venous lines and also the two fluid management strategies. So we used trial data from span from not, uh, 1996 up to 2000. And one of the points with that, uh, which I guess we'll get to later, is you were also able to look at some trending issues over time in terms of the patterns, right? That's right. And, you know, we had to use, uh, because in the open access data, we actually don't have the 
date of therapy because this is all de-identified data uh, being open access. So we actually use the uh, study time frame as a surrogate for calendar time. So the early studies, the mid-studies, and the later studies to, as a surrogate for time uh, frame. Why don't I let you start uh, by talking about some of the patterns of use? And again, as, as you've pointed out, just for the listener or maybe uh, medical students that are listening, that the types of therapies that we're talking about primarily, as you've mentioned, are these are for patients with profound ARDS, where, again, as you've pointed out, the only evidence-based therapy is low tidal volumes. And yet, for conventional assist control ventilation, there may be patients where hypoxemia becomes overwhelming, and so you will add things like inhaled epiprostanol, inhaled nitric oxide. You may try prone positioning or high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, or in an extreme situation, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And, and the point of this was for you to look at the pattern of these different modes uh, at the various ARDSnet centers, and so maybe you could take it from there. That's right. So what we found in terms of patterns of use was that um, out of the 2,632 uh, ARDSnet trial participants that were available, that had data available in our data set, 166 received uh, some type of rescue therapy. So that's about 6% of patients received a rescue therapy. And uh, prone positioning was the most common rescue therapy used overall. That was used in a little over 50% of patients. And then inhaled vasodilators were used sort of second most, and then in a minority of patients, high-frequency ventilation and ECMO were used. And we also found that the time from ARDSnet trial enrollment to use of rescue therapy was uh, a duration of a median of about two days between ARDSnet trial enrollment and start of use of rescue therapies. Now, given that the ARDSnet trials had a window of 36 to 48 hours, depending on the trial, from when you met ARDS criteria to starting the randomization, this means that our two-day period after enrollment would actually be probably a two- to four-day time from meeting ARDS criteria to getting a rescue therapy on average. One of the points I wanted to discuss with you uh, uh, on some of these points, the first one was Compared with other studies, the 6.3% seemed, um, as you point out in your study, it's, it's lower than perhaps in routine practice and in some of the other larger studies. Would you like to comment on that? Sure. So, um, you know, one of the points of our study was to try to find out what's happening in routine practice and by doing so within the context of the ARDSnet trials because that data was available because it's hard to know what's really happening in routine practice. We really have no way of knowing. But from other studies that actually report use of these rescue therapies as endpoints, like studies comparing high to low uh, PEEP, for example, or the studies um, by Papazian looking at the neuromuscular blockade in in ARDS, they actually report use of rescue therapies in those trials as well. And the 6% that we found used in the ARDSnet trials seemed to be far lower than up to 40% of patients in some of these other trials in different locations. And so it appears from what we gathered, these trials that were done in Europe appear to use more rescue therapies than trials done in North America and America, although we don't have sort of a direct comparison to look at that, and we're comparing um, you know, published data from those trials to, to ours. And that sort of segues into the other question I was going to ask you, where you mentioned a couple of times in the study, and I think I got it, but that at the time of rescue therapy, only 25% had a PF ratio less than 55. And I, I had to think about that for a little bit, but I think the point you're trying to make is that uh, on the ARDSnet trial, your target PO2 is 55 to 80, and assuming that you're even on a FiO2 of 100%, you would argue that if your PO2 is 65, then you don't 
need to do anything else because you're already within a target PO2 uh, range for the ArtsNet protocol. Is that did I get that right? Uh, that is right. We you know we understood that we were looking at these therapies being used in the context of the ArtsNet trials that did have these protocols um, of mechanical ventilation that might differ from routine practice. And so, uh, we, but it also allowed us to try to get at practice patterns within the, the use of those protocols and the fact that the protocol had 55 to um, to I believe. 85 as the goal of PAO2, and that most patients who receive rescue therapy actually had a PF ratio greater than that, uh, the goal of 55, we thought was interesting. I'd like to move on um, just to ask you, and, and I think the next two are, are sort of key hitting topic points, that you tried to develop a statistical model using a propensity score to look at the patients who received rescue therapy and controls who had the same propensity score but didn't receive rescue therapy and looked at their mortality. And if you'd like to talk about that. That's, that this is a key point. Uh, these, uh, these are observational studies that this is an observational study that I did, and this isn't a randomized control study. So in all observational studies, there's potential for confounding by indication of the um, for the, uh, for the intervention you're studying, or that's also called treatment bias. So that means there's probably differences between the patients who did or did not receive this, the rescue therapy in, in the context of this trial. So we utilize the method called propensity score matching to help to address this confounding. And um, how we, just briefly, how we did propensity score matching is uh, you take uh, the variables that are, uh, that are measured in the trial and you do a multivariable logistic regression predicting use of rescue therapy as your outcome variable. And then the propensity or a, a probability of use of rescue therapy is then calculated from the model and applied to every subject. And what we did was we took subjects that had the same probability of receiving rescue therapy who did not receive rescue therapy and matched them to patients with the same probability who did receive rescue therapy. And uh, that gave us a new cohort of patients that was smaller than the, all of the subjects in the trials, but who were matched on all the measured covariates. And um, this resulted in eliminating all the baseline differences between the, uh, the groups that we studied. And then you then compared the mortality of those two groups, and if you want to talk about those results. Sure. And so there's one more thing we did after we did this propensity score matching was uh, noting that things in the ICU change rapidly and are changing over time. Uh, in this new cohort that was matched on the propensity for receiving rescue therapy, we then further adjusted for differences in covariance at the time of, that the rescue therapy was given. And so these ended up being differences in PAO2 to FIO2 ratio and PEEP levels and organ failures at that time, which hint at maybe what was happening to the patients, but we tried to adjust for that as well. Um, so what, what we found after doing uh, these adjustments was that and we had this new cohort with 111 patients who received rescue therapy and 200 um, who did not, who were matched for the propensity score. The mortality in those that received rescue was 37% and in, it was 26% of those in the control group. And then um, after uh, using our Cox proportional hazard models to look at survival differences between these groups, we found that the hazard ratio for use of rescue therapy as compared to uh, non-use of rescue therapy in these propensity score match patients was 1.10, so that there was um, about a 10% higher risk of death that was not statistically significant for use of rescue therapy. 
but the the big picture I got from it was that there was no obvious uh, mortality difference in the group that received rescue therapy that's compared right. with so, those that did not, right? That's exactly right. So um, we did not find a benefit to use of rescue therapy. And then before we let you make some final comments, I just want to present the last section and then the sort of the summary points and then let you make some big picture comments. So first we've talked about the, the pattern of use. It was less common. Next, uh, less common than in some other studies. Then you did an important analysis to try and look at mortality benefit from the use of it, and it was not an obvious benefit. And then lastly, uh, you looked at the uh, comparison amongst rescue therapies in terms of, in order of most common, as we've got down here, prone was 68%, inhaled vasodilators 28%, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation around 7%, and ECMO 6%. Uh, as you said, 15% received two rescue therapies. And then again, you did a comparison between prone and inhaled vasodilators, between using prone positioning as a rescue therapy versus those that had inhaled uh, vasodilators. And again, you found no difference in mortality. Uh, and if you'd like to comment on that before we get to the discussion. Sure, that's right. We, we were uh, interested in seeing if there was any signal that one rescue therapy might be uh, show uh, benefits as compared with another. So we compared these two most commonly used in in this study, which was prone positioning versus inhaled vasodilators. One thing we did before we compared the outcomes was we looked at um, what factors, what clinical factors were associated with use of prone positioning as compared to inhaled vasodilators. And interestingly, we found that uh, the presence of sepsis as your lung injury risk factor and um, higher airway pressures, and also over time, prone positioning was less likely to be used as compared with inhaled vasodilators for, with those three factors. And then um, we did similar propensity score analysis to, that I had previously described comparing the prone to the inhaled vasodilators, and we didn't find any significant uh, survival differences between use of those therapies. And it's interesting, uh, just on a, on a personal note, again, it, it really depends on the kind of center you're at. Um, you know, some places get good at, we have a high-frequency oscillator and we know how to use it and the respiratory therapists are comfortable with it. Um, the inhaled epiprosinol or inhaled nitric oxide have issues of cost, but again, they're more of giving a medication and it's sort of conceptually simpler because you're just giving that medication. Um, you mentioned that prone positioning doesn't require any special equipment. I mean, it does require you to have the beds that can prone, you need to have them, the nurses need to be able to uh, be accepting of flipping a patient over. Um, and I, those are just some of the personal statements because it's, it's going to be institution dependent. There has to be a component of that, right? That's right. And, and we would have liked to have explored that. Uh, in the arts and open access database, there's not a uh, signifier for institution or study site. And that would have been wonderful to look at variations by institution. I suspect, as you suggest, that there are wide variations based on institutional uh, differences, but um, that, that might be something for, for future study. Uh, one other thing I wanted to comment on that, that I haven't commented on yet was that we had looked at these trends over time um, between use of these therapies and, you know, using study order as a surrogate. We found that um, use of inhaled uh, overall rescue therapies appear to be increasing with each subsequent study, and then uh, use of inhaled vasodilators seems to be increasing and prone decreasing over time. Um, and, and as you point out in the paper, though, and, and we can make that point again, we're sort of wrapping things up, but that goes against some results of some recent meta-analyses, right? That's right. And to be fair, these meta-analyses were not done at the time of the ARDSnet trials, but this is sort of retrospectively looking at things. 
three, three recent meta-analyses have come out looking at uh, high-frequency ventilation, looking at prone positioning, and looking at inhaled vasodilators. And, and the inhaled vasodilator meta-analyses are, are exclusively inhaled nitric oxide. There's really no data regarding inhaled prostacyclines. But uh, the meta-analyses of um, inhaled uh, vasodilators, the, the, there was a recent one print, uh, published in the British Medical Journal in 2007, and that actually showed a non-statistically significant uh, increased risk of uh, mortality with use of the inhaled vasodilators. This is in randomized controlled trials, and actually a statistically significant increase of uh, acute kidney injury associated with use of uh, inhaled vasodilators, uh, which is um, provocative, I think, uh, in, li in light of our findings as well. Right, and and those were for those were meta-analyses of studies of ARDS, correct? That's right. Those are meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials of these individual rescue therapies right. in ARDS, mostly, or refractory hypoxemia, where some of the inclusion criteria for other studies. Right. So what I'd like to do now is to just, I'm going to summarize the big discussion points for you and then let you make some final comments about your uh, things you've learned by doing this study and some potential future studies. So again, as somebody who over the past few years now has had to learn a whole bunch of different critical care topics, I think that you, Dr. Walke, have picked on a very important one, and I hope you keep working on it, because lending clarity in this area would be super terrific. So <laughs> the, first <laughs> point, the first point you've made were that using a retrospective analysis uh, of the ARDSnet data, a large pool of carefully looked at patients in ARDS, you found that rescue therapy was used only around 6% of the time, and they were targeted to younger patients with poor oxygenation or elevated airway pressures, or both. You found that there was a trend towards decreased utilization of prone positioning and increased use of inhaled vasodilators, although the opposite of that may be supported by recent meta-analyses. Um, and to, just to clarify that, the point is, is that these recent meta-analyses showed that potentially prone positioning should be something we should be heading more towards rather than inhaled uh, vasodilators. That's right. The, uh, the prone positioning meta-analysis was published by uh, Sood et, et al. in intensive care medicine, I believe, last year. And that showed uh, a trend towards uh, a benefit for use of prone positioning in patients with a PDF ratio less than 100. And then no evidence of a survival benefit with non-protocolized use of rescue therapy in ARDS uh, and acute lung injury. And again, one of the... just talking to you right now, I guess the issue of, of using muscle relaxants and paralysis didn't come up in this, um, I guess because it was felt sort of to be separate from some of these rescue therapies, or, or how did you think about that when you were designing the study? Yes, I, we, we didn't look at uh, muscle relaxants and paralysis as quote-unquote uh, potential rescue therapies or, or salvage therapies. Um, I think that there has been a characterization of the sedation used in the ARDSNET trials in prior studies, so I think we would also be uh, potentially duplicating uh, work there with, with an analysis of, of the sedation practices and paralysis. But I would imagine just from clinical experience that by the time they're reaching most of these, I would imagine the overwhelming majority probably would already have been used with muscle relaxants, right? That's, that's, I mean, based on my experience as well, you know, especially patients that are um, receiving high-frequency ventilation or prone, they're, certainly ECMO, they're usually um, either... Uh, heavily, very heavily sedated or very heavily sedated and paralyzed. And so what would you like to make us some final comments either on what you learned or what you're thinking about doing in the future? Sure. So, um, you know, one, some things we're thinking about doing in the future are, are looking into this a little more, um, and we're currently um, 
in the midst of um, initiating a, a survey study with some um, clinical case examples, which um, we, we hope to disseminate to uh, physicians that to try to get at what practice patterns uh, might uh, might be in a different uh, type of analysis. Um, in, and uh, you know, overall, uh, we thought that uh, the use of rescue therapies was six uh, percent was on the lower side compared with uh, other studies. Um, and that, um, you know, the patients who were found to be getting rescue therapies who had the more severe oxygenation in younger is in line with um, our experience in, in practice as, as well um, in terms of who, who we observe often gets these therapies. And uh, the trends were interesting and, and also deserve further study due to the fact that the timing uh, by using the ARDSNET study as a surrogate for time, you know, has limitations and uh, certainly um, more detailed investigations of trends of these therapy use over time, especially in response to some of these meta-analyses that have come out, would, would be very interesting. Um, and certainly, um, further studies of efficacy of these therapies are, are, are very important. Um, you know, I think the, the right heart catheter studies that, that were done were from perspective through RCTs um, are, are maybe a mirror for, for these type of uh, studies where in the Pac-Man study of right heart catheters, that study um, used an entry criteria that physicians felt the need for a right heart catheter. And so then at that time, they randomized patients. So it wasn't a specific protocolized group who received it. It was based on uh, the physician thought that the need for this intervention was there. And I think it, from our results, it appears that this is how rescue therapies are used, that they're used later when physicians feel they're needed rather than protocolized at a certain time, which which is how they've been studied previously in RCT. So maybe sort of a more real-life randomized control trial um, like the Pac-Man study would be, would be needed. And it would be, it would be great, I would imagine, in the future to at least figure out if one or more of these quote-unquote rescue therapies is associated with harm and, and to at least take that out of the list of things we do, right? That's true. And I think more study on the... Um, inhaled uh, prostacyclines is definitely warranted because we do have a fair amount of data on inhaled nitric oxide, and that data doesn't appear to show that it's associated with the benefit, but we have no data on inhaled prostacyclin and whether it's different or similar to inhaled nitric oxide is unclear. We've been speaking today with Dr. Alan J. Walke. He's a pulmonary critical care physician at Boston University, and we've been discussing his article published in Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is Utilization Patterns and Patient Outcomes Associated with the Use of Rescue Therapies in Acute Lung Injury. Thank you so much, Dr. Walke, for being part of the podcast today. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Registration is now open for SCCM's 41st Critical Care Congress, which will take place February 4th to 8th, 2012, in Houston, Texas, USA. Explore new frontiers in a city where great ideas take flight. Houston provides the perfect setting to forge new connections and fuel innovation in the critical care community. The 41st Congress will focus on new and innovative solutions that dramatically improve the outcomes and lives of critically ill and injured patients worldwide. 
For more information or to register, visit www.sccm.org congress. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.